I'm Kasai, and I was adopted from Ethiopia. And I'm Pascal, and I'm a filmmaker. And you're listening to Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. This show brings critical perspectives on adoption to the forefront. Last month was National Adoption Awareness Month. And since adoption agencies usually drive the conversation, we wanted to make an episode about adoptees reclaiming their own narratives. It's quite rare to find public talks where adoptees speak critically about adoption. But two weeks ago, a panel conference was held at the University of Quebec in Montreal, which linked adoption to colonialism. We decided to meet the organizer, Amandine Gay. The conference is in an hour, and Amandine is getting ready. She checks on Facebook to see how many people said they'd attend. Regardless of the number of people attending, Amandine is very excited. She says she always wanted to organize a panel conference on adoption. Uh, as you grow older and uh, you can start doing the things you've wanted to see for a long time. So for me, like I've been doing things like, oh, I wish there was an old black women panel. I'm doing it. And then I'm going to be like, oh, I would love to do a conference with this person, this person, this person, and then I can do it. So I'm going to do it. Um, My co-host Pascal and I eagerly follow Amazon downtown Montreal to the University of Quebec. Hundreds of students are coming in and out of their classes. We're waiting in front of the conference hall. It's about to start. Alors bonsoir à toutes et à tous. Je vous remercie d'être venus ce soir. C'est vraiment. There are four panelists besides Amandine. One of them is Joshua Whitehead, a two-spirit Ojibwe Cree member of the Peguis First Nation on Treaty One territory. My father being adopted, his last name was Kwasuki, so he was adopted by a Polish family. Um, so my name until I was 19 was Joshua Kwasuki. So I was always read as a Japanese person. Um, they thought Kwasuki meant Kawasaki, so apparently I own a motorcycle company somewhere. <laughs> I wish I was a millionaire or billionaire. Um, so if you're out there and you want to send me a check from Kawasaki, Please do. Um, but so I, I always kind of never fit into these spaces. Like I was never white enough um, because I was an urban Indian. And my parents, my dad was adopted. My mother's side kind of went to the assimilation process and lost access to Cree and moved to the urban space. Uh, so I was an urban Indian. I wasn't Indian enough for those living on the reservation. Add in the fact that I'm a queer person, so I never kind of fit into either of these worlds. And then also add in the fact that I was read as Asian or white for so many times. So I always kind of felt like this liminal kind of ghastly figures, kind of always, you know, phasing in and out of all of these worlds. Joshua is completing a PhD at the University of Calgary, focusing on indigenous literature and culture, queer and critical race theory. Unlike the other panelists, he's not adopted, but he's intimately connected to adoption. His father was adopted after his grandmother was murdered. In 1962, my grandmother, Rose Whitehead, was murdered in Saskatoon by a man named Stephen Kosarusk. This would be the beginning of my family's bifurcation. My father and his five siblings were displaced through the child and family services afterwards. While I recall the stories my father tells me of his experiences, one saved newspaper clipping stands out in particular and the headline reads, Funeral is only chance for reunion. Indians have no funds to reunite adopted out families. Mm -hmm. 
in our current reconciliatory moment, I want us to think on Native American adoptees. I want us to push for apologies beyond Manitoba, reparations, compensation, access to original birth certificates, and more specifically, funding for kinship resurgence for families displaced through adoption. We owe this to all survivors of the 60s scoop. He reads two poems. We'll play one of them that's entitled Asana the Forest, still. When I'm in bed, curled into a Z, holding myself in, I wonder if you see me, if you think this is the skin show. I'm not an X, but I'm full of O's. A name by any other is not always as sweet. XOXO, what do you want to see, honey? Question mark. Mine was steeped in adopted genocide, Kwasuki. When classmates used to ask me, are you a Japanese boy? Can you do karate? Do you own Kawasaki? Tell them no, but maybe I'm bearing straight. I evolved with a name, Injun, Savage, Indian, Native, Aboriginal, Indigenous, First Nation, Whitehead. Is that too not a genocide? Question mark. When I forget my name, I tell myself I am my father's son. And do you think that's enough to admit me free to your museum of human rights? Question mark. These days, I try not to cry. And at the same time, I try not to look too stoic. I take visual cues from Calvin Klein advertisements. That's some mighty fine Americana. I think, man, Pawnee's never looked so fancy. And that reminds me, I need to make another payment on my VCR down at the buy and sell. Maybe this outcome is expected. This external is my mangled internal. 2015, that's destiny manifesting. If my flesh were still fresh, I'd be ripe with residue and think, ha, that's funny. My skin is the guilt you need to see. You see Indian clearly, but do you see me as I am? A son of a father, of a murdered mother, of an adopted Polish family. This is the 60s scoop. Do you see the mark, the split of hair, divided scalp and widowed peaks, phantom braids pulled so tight? The head aches, history unfolding in the mind. When I need to feel it all again to write, I hug my father goodnight. And if you still don't see me, it's probably because you tell yourself you just don't see color anymore. When I first heard of a residential school, I was in university taking a directed reading, begging for answers to what means resident, question mark. Res, I didn't, question mark. I was 25. And Freud says a lot of things, but Heimlich was always a choking thing. Not every house could be a home. Sometimes I forget that the children have lives beyond these four walls. Are you eating well? Do you sleep? Question mark. Does your head still burn from DDT? Question mark. Maybe I am anal retentive. I can collect myself, you know. But you're right, that's pop psychology, and I'm still vintage chic, fungibility. Because I exist as spiders in the livers of men because their bellies are full of words like liberalism. And I don't need you to tip the top hat of your sentence. Pretentious verbs are decoed with pro. Tell me what I already know. I love you, but. 
You always say, but you have a choice after you tell me, OMG, TMI, how indignant this is the age of information. And if there was a choice for me, it always led back into the darkened corner of a dying reserve, ripe with premonitions of fruits sweetened with conditions of death. I choose, I choose, you say you. Quick answer, nation means incarceration. And the only thing that helps me feel better is knowing it'll go away. They'll forget about it tomorrow in good time, in good time, and lull myself into accepting the fact that I was born to disappear. I say I, I, and you say I owe you. Miigwech. Joshua uses poetry and storytelling as a way to reclaim his indigenous identity. He considers it to be an important political tool. The two poems that I share with you today, they come out of trauma, they come out of pain, but they also are a bubbling of blood memories um, and of a kind of a longing for kinship. So in a sense, these traumas almost become embedded within the body um, in a way that kind of like a... a this, it's, encoded in like a DNA almost. So as a lot of indigenous scholars say this, the idea of like blood memories becomes intergenerational and in many instances takes seven generations to kind of come through that. So I guess the reasoning for my wanting to tell my stories my way is because as we are kind of talking about here, discourses and discussions around indigeneity are always kind of a filtered and censored, skewed towards certain things. Um, so as the poems narrate, like I really didn't talk about or learn about residential schools until I was in university. And even then, it was always kind of autodidactic, like I was always teaching myself. So in a sense, I wanted to, to kind of bridge that idea of not knowing and also not knowing the discourse and not knowing the grandmother, the idea to write the poems was always kind of mean, as a means of resurgence and revival and reclaiming. So my stories and my poems are always about like, revisionism and retelling the story in a culturally correct, healthy, and culturally political way. Um, so the story itself, the poems themselves are to put it bluntly, like they are grave markers because my grandmother is, she has an unmarked grave. So in a sense, she wholly embodies like the idea um, of the vanished Indian, the vanished indigenous person. So the stories are in themselves ghostly, ghastly in a sense, um, but are also, as a, for me, they're a form of revival and revisionism. And in a sense, that haunting presence also kind of becomes a decolonial tool because I have to interrogate those who are, you know, benefit from structures of settler colonialism. So for me, yeah, poetry and storytelling are my most powerful decolonial tool and my most important means of reclamation. Sitting next to Joshua is Nakusit, who you might remember from our previous episode. Nakusit is a Cree woman who was adopted into a Jewish family. Uh, I was um, originally uh, born in uh, Thompson, Manitoba. And uh, back in the day, uh, the government felt that there was an assimilation uh, or an Indian problem in the way to assimilate us was to put us in catalogs and in newspaper clippings that you should adopt a native child because you'd be doing a good thing because our parents weren't able to take care of us. So 
My parents were quite ill-equipped to bring up an indigenous child because they had no um, respect for indigenous children. They thought that uh, indigenous kids were, uh, or people themselves were uh, less than. So if they were to assimilate me, they gave me a nice Jewish name and sent me to Hebrew school and um, told me to tell people I was Israeli because of the way I looked. And I was very rebellious, so I never actually fit into that. The more I looked towards the native culture, the more they pushed. So it was very, very, very tense. And I knew that when I turned 18, I could leave. And that's what I did. I waited and waited and waited until I turned 18, because then it was safe to go. And then it took me many years to try to figure out how to live um, in terms of, was I going to grow up in the white world? Or was I going to try to find the, the native population in Montreal? And what does that look like? I ended up getting an enormous amount of support, though, from my bubby, which is Yiddish for grandmother. So my Jewish grandmother, she thought I was just fabulous. And she said that, you know, you're going to do great things one day. And I said, tell her, no, I'm going to go to jail. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything great. And she helped me get my Indian status, and she actually um, connected me back with my biological family. And then she passed away. So she never got to see any of the stuff that I did. Once she got her Indian status back, she went to university. She was determined on making a change in institutions that work with Indigenous peoples, eventually becoming the director of the Montreal Native Women's Shelter. When I became the executive director in 2004, uh, I had an opportunity to power trip. Is that a good word? <laughs> I was able to go to all the organizations that were having issues with indigenous people, which is basically every organization, and to go and address some of the issues. One of the biggest issues I saw was when a woman comes to the Native Women's Shelter, we do a 15-page intake. One of the questions is, were you as a child in youth protection? Yes. Are, do you have children now? Yes. Are your children in youth protection? Yes. So I see this cycle that is growing instead of reversing. So we started off by doing a collaboration agreement saying before you take any child, because they get these signal moths, so before you take a child and put that, separate the mother and child and put that child in a non-indigenous foster home, bring it to the native woman's shelter, bring the mother and child, let us do all our expertise and keep that mother and child together. And should that fail, then you do that. And if you do put that child in a non-indigenous home, here's a manual, because there's something wrong with the way you bring up the children, that when the children age out, they end up in the streets and they have no cultural pride. And my parents, for sure, didn't teach me any cultural pride. So all the negative experiences I had at my uh, Jewish family went into here. I She's waving a little handbook in the air. So when my parents said, you know, Indian people, you're all a bunch of drug addicts and prostitutes. That's what you're going to grow up to be. I was like, really? So I have a page here where we have role models. Here we go. Where's my role models? So we have Adam Beach and Buffy St. Marie and Carrie Price. And everyone's like, Carrie Price is native? Yeah, he's native. Uh, <laughs> Carla Robinson, Alyssa P. Isaac, Jordan Tutu. So it was kind of like everything that um, sort of counteracted the way I was brought up. I feel it's my responsibility because of my lived experience. To she says most of her work is undervalued by institutions. In fact, her involvement is usually unpaid. Everything that I do, it's all for free, but somebody has to do it and nobody wants to step up. So, you know, eventually monies will come, right? One day. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get to get 
basically, how do you uh, hold the institutions accountable and also how do you make people pay? Okay. So, okay, can I just tell you this is really ridiculous? In Montreal, they have an SPFM officer and his name is Carlo DeAngelis and he is the Aboriginal liaison worker. DeAngelis, he's Italian. I'm like, why is there an Italian guy that is the Aboriginal liaison officer? Are you telling me he knows more about my people than I do? Not that I'm going to become a police officer. It's never going to happen. But still, there are indigenous police officers. Why wouldn't you put... Anyway, whatever. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. So he presented a budget. And I explained to him, when you do this training, you have to start off with an elder. And I contacted an elder in May. And he gave me his quote. And he did the budget for the training and forgot the elder. And I was like, seriously? You forgot the elder. You need to go back to your supervisor and you need to tell him that you made a mistake and that you need to put money in there because we cannot have this training if we don't start off in a good way. Ducousset works hard in making institutions accountable. She recalls a time when she was faced with paperwork that were blatantly racist towards Inuit people. This is my favorite, and I'm being sarcastic. It said, we are taking this child because uh, her mother is Inuit, which makes her a risk to her child. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> this is me going to youth protection, going, who wrote this? Who wrote this? I want to see them, who wrote this? And the social worker's going, it was the lawyers. And I'm like, bring the lawyers in. They never brought the lawyers in, but that's now my reputation. I'm like the hard ass, I do it everywhere. You have to keep them accountable, though. People are always saying, oh, yeah, you know, you do reconciliation really good. I'm like, no, I don't, because reconciliation is friendly, and I am not friendly. It's all about accountability, and if I can bring an army with me, that's what I do. I'm just one person, but if I can bring the doctor and I can bring the other ones that have, you know, the background in what I need to help move forward, you know, it's my name is on everything, but it's not me who's doing everything. It's a bunch of fantastic people. That's what you got to do. It's not just one person. It's, a, it's I feel like the native Andy Warhol. Nakusa points out that many of these issues could be avoided if we had a historically accurate curriculum in our schools. I remember learning about the friendly European settlers engaging in food trade activities but I don't remember learning about colonization. So here in Montreal, if you look at the uh, history of indigenous people in the curriculum for elementary and high school, there's nothing. And because there's nothing, then people, the only news they get about indigenous people is through the media. And the media is really good because they actually have the four Ds to describe indigenous people, drunk, dead, Dancing. Darn, I forgot the last one. I believe the fourth one. word she meant was drugged. At least from the stereotypes I know. So this is what society knows about indigenous people, especially here in Montreal. If we don't take the time to teach them, they will never know. So when I had mentioned before about the training that we're doing with the SPVM, that's all the Montreal police officers. We already know that we're going to be teaching an organization that is like this. I don't want to learn about indigenous people, but I have to because I'm being forced to do it, so I'm going to listen like this. So our uh, goal is to try to trick them into learning. In a way, it's almost like with children. How do you teach them? So you do it in short little segments, and it's got to be super interesting, and you do this in a certain way that by the time they leave, they're like, oh my God, I learned something. Yeah, that's what we have to do. 
What we did, we had a little focus group where we had 11 SPVM officers and we did the blanket exercise. And Vicky, a colleague of mine, actually did a little run through where every police officer did a little introduction about who they are. And they said, I don't want to learn about your history. What I want to know is when I see an, a, a drunk Inuk woman on the street, how do I help her? I'm like, okay, whatever. So we did the blanket exercise and they learned so much about colonialism that they were outraged. They were like, what? The government did this to you? I can't believe they did this to you. No one ever told me this. So if we don't step up and teach, no one else is going to. And I'm not sure what it's like out there where you live, but here it's really, really bad. Nobody knows anything. So I'm, and most of the work that I do in committees, psh, I, I'm just like the committee queen, like things happen. I swear I should have like run a cult because everyone listens to me. I have these great ideas. I'm like, yeah, we're gonna do this. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And it works. So I guess I'm lucky, but I really think that, I've heard people say, you know, we don't need to teach anyone. People need to do the work themselves. But I'm telling you with all the distractions with the phone, people would probably rather go on Facebook than learn about colonialism. So if I can come to a class or to a workshop and teach you, I'm gonna do it real good. Twice I break the chain I struggle to explain Why in God's name can't my mind just stay the same You're listening to Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM To avoid all this unnecessary change I'm Ondine, the organizer and moderator of the panel explains how she reclaimed her identity and history as a black woman through academic research, activism, filmmaking, and acting. As a little girl, I would have loved to be invisible for one day, but that was maybe when I was five or six. And then I'm, I'm, I don't remember it beyond that point because after that point, I was like, well, since everybody's going to turn around, I'm going to be loud and, you know, extremely flamboyant. You know, like there's always been this thing about me. So <laughs> I don't know. It was sort of like the only way to control it. You know, since everybody would look at me, I would go to the supermarket and say, Mommy, mama, and then everybody would turn around and be like, oh, my God, you know, what is that? You know, because me with my two white parents in the 80s in France, you know, everybody was like, what is that? <laughs> and uh, so I've been like that for quite a while. You know, absolutely not discreet, talking a lot, laughing a lot. That was, I guess, my first way of resisting, you know, the fact that I was different and that I could not fit in. And then it became more political by the time I entered the Institute of Political Studies in, uh, in Lyon, where I come from. I meet with a lot of adoptees and I often hear that they feel like their stories are unique. There is very little... Um, sociological analysis on their experiences. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say that it's like usually what most people in minorities feel like, you know, um, that's that's why I often say, you know, that, well, it's like it's, a, it's an old uh, feminist uh, slogan, personal is political, because that's the first step to actually be conscious about what's going on with your life and realize that you are part of society and that, of course, you're an individual and we all get to determine to determine what we're gonna do with our future or with our life. But it's important, I guess, especially for those of us who are not feeling well, to understand that we are, you know, um, part of a system. If everything is well for you, well, the, like the political aspect of your experience is not so important in the sense that 
maybe you don't need it to function. But if you are feeling bad about, about your adoption, if, you are, if you've been traumatized by your experience, instead of thinking that you're the one who did not manage to turn your adoption into something positive and something that worked, um, instead of feeling the guilt and the pressure on your part, then you could see that, you know, it is one trauma to be to be a migrant that hasn't chosen to, to leave their own country. It is another one to abandon a language. It is another one to be raised in a white family when you're a person of color, especially if this family is not racially aware of or worse, if this family is racist. And it is another thing to be growing up in a country that has systemic racism. And so with that, I guess that, at least to me, what's really important about people understanding that their experience is political is to lift the guilt of their shoulders and and say look like you're part of a system so if you if you have you know if you are suffering and also like you're not a failure you know what i mean like i hate when people are asking if adoptions are successful what does that mean are we asking you know families that have had natural children if their 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 parenting was su successful and if we were to ask that we would ask about the parenting we would not ask about were you you know, are you a success as a child? Can your biological family say that they're proud of you? You know, and how do we measure success? Does it mean that, you know, adoptees are performing? Like, and what, what about, you know, high-functioning depression? You know, I see a lot of adoptees that are doing so many things and are really active, but they are not well. So, you know, what do we even mean by successful adoption? Does it mean that the adults are happy and, you know, functioning? And, um, and well-balanced, or do we mean that they satisfy the family's ego and the society's ego about saving children of color from the South? And so if they're not performing enough, then they're a failure? So Amandine, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I had a thought. I, I see that usually adoptees are not seen as immigrants, but I, me being a second-generation immigrant, I see a lot of similarities between the displacement of young children all around, around the world because of poverty, um, social stigma, um, famine, war. So do, do you think that it's an issue that we perceive adoptees more like an assimilated population rather than immigrants? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's one of the reasons why I, I want to uh, to talk about this in a political way. That's why the, um, the panel that I organized was about forced migrations. What's interesting is that the Canadian census counts adoption, transnational adoptions in the immigration numbers. So it is actually politicized by the, the federal state. But in the general opinion, people never see transnational adoptions as immigration. And it is. And that's why to me, like in the long run, I'm really interested in that as a colonial practice, because it's a way of and as a practical and capitalist practice, which means that it's a way of boosting your demography. It's a way of, you know, furthering the settler project. And, uh, and it's a way of, um, yeah, ensuring your future. I mean, Canada has, a, has, a, has an aging population, and so they need new blood. And that's the other thing, you know, there is no better migrant than a baby. And that's what's happened for a lot of adoptees, right? They are siding with white supremacy. Like they are, they've been adopted and they really want to be white and they really want to belong in society. So they are not going to question power structures. And especially for those who've been adopted in extremely rich family, in bourgeois families, like it's never possible for black adoptees, for instance, to be made honorary whites. But for Asian adoptees, 
it's really possible. So to me, it's really interesting also to see how race, class, gender interacts in, in transnational adoption, because I think that there, the power structure of what is expected from adoptees is, is far more complex than just, you know, uh, being a child in a family that did not have one. I think there is a national project. There, there was in France too, like in the, the first laws about um, secrecy of, uh, of birth giving in France were made in the 1940s because a lot of uh, French women were having ch uh, children with German, uh, with German guys. But because France did not want to sort of like lose this demography, you know, like they made a law so that women could, uh, could give birth anonymously. And then at the end of the war, there was like a huge movement of taking, you know, mixed babies, uh, so German and French, from Germany to send them in France. And the minute Germany rebuilt itself, they stopped it. They were like, you're not taking our children because like everybody knows. That's the thing. To me, it's, it's, it's really interesting that children have been absolutely depoliticized when they've always been, you know, at the center of, of um, political battles between states because it's the future. You know, when Haiti closes international adoption in 2010 after the, um, after the earthquake, because like countries started doing like predation adoptions, it's because there is a clear, clear sense that the children are the future of Haiti. So if, you know, global country come and take all the children every time there's an earthquake or a natural catastrophe, what's going to become of Haiti? Because they won't have anybody to rebuild the country. You know, if you look at the laws, it's been really clear that the states do know what it means to get children from other country and how it's going to boost its own demography and its own economy and stuff. This part is never discussed. Oh, my baby is like a little black star. He's just like his daddy way yonder. That was it for this month. You were listening to Pascal and Kasai, and this was Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. We have a new website, so don't forget to check it out. It's outofthefog.news. Thanks for listening. Go on, tell my Jesus just where he are. Go on, tell my Jesus all about my star.